Hey, Kyle, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks very much. It's unfortunately a slightly rainy day in Toronto here, but otherwise a good mood. Yeah, same here. It's been weird because I don't know what Ontario is like, but Michigan, it's like one day was 80 degrees and then the next day dropped down to like 50 or 60. Oh, sorry, that's Fahrenheit. But you get what I mean. It's okay. I lived a little bit in the States, so I like can do the conversion. <laughs> I know that like 70s, nice and comfortable. 80s, getting too hot. 60s, like, not too bad. I think fall's finally here. Yeah. So another sign of fall is the new iPhones. Did you get a new iPhone? I got the new iPhone 11 Pro Max, which I've been waiting to upgrade for a few years. So this is, like, my first experience with, like, the X, you know, edge-to-edge -edge screen as well. What do you think of it? Honestly, so far, I'm pretty impressed with it. And as much as people have complained about how the three lenses look, I actually think it looks pretty nice. They've done something good with the glass backing, so it looks pretty refined. So I can't really complain about that. I've played around with the camera and the uh, night photography a little bit, and it's pretty cool to see how much it can capture in low light. What did you have previously? Previously, I had the iPhone 7 Plus. Okay. And do you really like the Mac size? You know, like I'm used to it in my hand now, so I can't complain. You know, for the longest time, I didn't think that I would like it, but I believe when the 7 Plus was the only one that had the two cameras, and I was really interested in that functionality. So I upgraded to the largest one, and now I'm kind of used to it. But I think that both the regular size and the max size are both pretty, pretty good in terms of screen size you get. I'm just sort of used to this in my hand, and I like that when they at least made the change from the old ones to the new ones, they kept the size the same, and then just you got more screen space, so it feels exactly the same as my old phone in my hand. Yeah, I was a plus-size user, and I loved it, and then I went to the 10s, not Max, and I don't feel like I miss the size because the screen size is pretty much the same, but I was just curious like, if you see like a big advantage with the Max. No, I don't really think so. I guess it gets a little bit longer battery life, which is always it's, nice. But otherwise, yeah, they both look pretty nice. I was sort of on the fence whether to go with one or the other, but I think ultimately it was kind of like hand feel that I just yep. like, I was used to the weight and everything. So I just wanted to make a seamless transition like that. And the big selling point for me with the Plus was the extra lens. And like, now we don't have that. Like that extra selling point isn't there because you can pretty much get that with the regular pro. Yeah. So like, that was my big thing was, I just want a really good camera. Like I don't have cameras anymore. Like I think I sold my DSLR and, and my other digital cameras a couple of years ago. Cause just, I, I wasn't really using them. And like the convenience of having an iPhone was always worthwhile to me. And like the dual cam, like I'm a, I know people don't really care for portrait mode, but I use portrait mode all the time when I'm taking pictures with my family and things like that. And I like it a lot. It's funny that you just sold your DSLR and I just bought a mirrorless camera because I was interested actually mostly for video recording purposes, mm -hmm. which I think is actually where there's the biggest difference between what these phone cameras can do and what the regular cameras can do because they can do a lot of post-processing on like one image, but doing things like getting that portrait mode, depth of field effect for video is not something they're really capable of today. Yeah, not now. That aside, I mean, it's just like the camera on your phone is just so much more of a utility for everyday use. So many of the pictures that I take with my phone are just to like, to help me maybe remember a password that was written on a note somewhere that I wanted, or just general utility. They're not very interesting pictures, but I would never do that with a mirrorless camera, obviously. Right. Not convenient right. at all. Yeah. 
really liking these cameras on these phones. So what's your opinion of like night mode? You know, it wasn't the operating the way I thought. I thought it was just going to basically do a whole bunch of post-processing on the image and know how to like extract the right colors. But it actually does do like a long shutter effect, okay. which surprised me a little bit. I wasn't ready to see that, but it's interesting. So I think depending on the amount of light in the room, it kind of auto suggests about how long it's going to do the shutter effect for. And seems like the longest it goes for is maybe four seconds. Mm, okay. What I find interesting about it, though, like I'm curious about what it's doing, because obviously if you are holding the shutter open for four seconds and you're just doing it like handheld, you're probably not holding it perfectly still. So I wonder, you know, what other sorts of machine learning and things they're applying after the fact to make sure it still comes out like a crisp photo, but it's grabbed more information about color simultaneously. I can't say I've really looked into exactly what it's doing, but that was the experience I got from it anyway. I thought it was going to be just, oh, snap, and then it'll post-process and like bring out all this color. But it actually does try to record more light for longer. Okay, so that's what it's doing. So it's basically keeping the shutter open to get more light while at mm -hmm. the same time doing some ML stuff to like figure out what's the best photo to use or what's the best picture to use. Interesting. For sure. That's pretty cool. So before we deep dive into continuous integration, you want to tell people a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm terrible at talking about myself or building myself up. <laughs> but I'm an iOS developer in Toronto. I've also done a lot of full stack development over the years. So I've done backend and JavaScript and PHP. But I did Objective-C back in the day and then got a little tired of it, did some more JavaScript just because the language, I think, was more pleasant to use. And then Swift came out and they open sourced it. And then I just sort of like turned all my attention back to iOS again. And then I've just been going straight with iOS since. But even some of my continuous integration experience actually came first from doing it on the web side, deploying web and backend JavaScript applications. And then when I came back to the iOS world, realized I was joining a lot of teams that weren't doing much with that. And so really started trying to learn more about continuous integration on the iOS side and championing that at the places I was working. And where are you working right now? So right now I am consulting with Deloitte for Loblaw Digital. Loblaws is like the Walmart of Canada, mm. effectively. Okay. And I work with their loyalty, their PC Optimum Points application, which is, I believe, the biggest loyalty program in Canada as well. So like when you go out and buy groceries or you go to the pharmacy, right. you're constantly collecting points and they're giving you bonuses and things. So. Yeah, that's the application I'm working with right now. Now, what have you found is the biggest difference with CI or continuous integration on iOS? And I'm assuming we're just talking about iOS as opposed to web development. I mean, I think probably the deployment factor is a huge thing, which isn't exactly like it's the last step of the continuous integration process, like right as you deploy. But going even beyond continuous integration, there's like continuous integration, continuous deployment. And continuous deployment is really like you're always able to continuously like push out the latest version of your application, you know, multiple times per day even, which is not really possible from an iOS perspective. We have to be a little more meticulous because we go through the Apple review process. A lot of companies are, you know, probably deploying maybe at most once a week. I don't hear of many who are deploying more than once a week. There's probably some out there. So it's a little bit slower. That's one of the big things. And then I think even just some of the tasks you actually do because continuous integration sort of starts, first of all, with like build, test, deploy steps, which are 
kind of the, just the core steps to getting your application built, making sure it's actually functioning properly, and then sending it out to the world. But beyond that, we tend to add a lot of additional tasks to kind of make sure that we're as much as possible automating our entire process. So some of those additional steps are probably quite different depending on web or iOS. Like I remember on web, I had to be constantly clearing caches out, you know, clearing caches out from CDNs, our content delivery networks. And I don't have to do that as much on an iOS side, but there's other tasks I might do instead, like, you know, automatically generate screenshots or something like that. All right. So let me do my best attempt at trying to explain what CI is, and then you let me know what parts I'm missing. So continuous integration is the idea of as you make changes to the code, you are running various tests, not just like unit tests, but also like integration testing, things like that. And also making sure that the app can be easily deployed. And usually you're doing it on some central server somewhere, either locally or in the cloud. So that way you can best recreate the situations for where an app will actually be running. And I'm saying this because you have like for server side stuff, it's pretty easy because you can just run the actual server and recreate that situation pretty easily. Whereas with client applications, you need to like actually recreate the client atmosphere and the client environment in order to do that. But is that like a good description of continuous integration? Yeah, I think that's a fairly good description of it. What am I missing? It's not very often that people ask me to explain it in sort of formal terms. So I'm probably usually speaking about it from the benefits perspective. But one of the things I guess I take away from it sort of from, I guess, a more philosophical perspective is like there's many things you do to sort of make sure that your app is deployment ready. And some of those things can be automated and some of them can't. The ones that you can automate, you should automate and you should be doing them every single time, every single day. Yeah, there we go. And I think that's it. It's like regression testing where you're like testing old features and making sure they're continually working and doing it every time in a repeated basis. And when we talk deployment, we're talking about like taking that app and putting it on an actual machine, whether that's your server for a server side app or an iPhone or iOS simulator in a lot of cases and actually testing it on that device and seeing if the app is working. Yeah, absolutely. So if you were going to convince somebody who like has never done continuous integration, especially in an iOS application, what would you say to that person in order to convince them that like, yeah, you really need to get started on getting your iPhone app running some sort of continuous integration whenever a new release is about to come out in the app store? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly on some teams, you just really kind of help identify the pain points they're feeling or you know, something goes wrong and then you do a retrospective on like, why did this happen and how could we prevent it in the future? And then it's really easy to say like, oh, well, CI could fix that. Coming from the web, like the example I used before with cache clearing, that was a super easy thing to point out at one company I worked with. Like we were just forgetting to clear caches and then people weren't pulling down the latest version of the application or they were pulling down the latest JavaScript, but not getting the latest CSS. And so they weren't seeing things correctly. So that was, you know, a good pain point from a web perspective. On iOS, one team I worked with, they just had one developer who could deploy the app and had all the certificates and was ready to go. And he was also responsible because one of the things when you deploy an iOS application is you always have to bump the build version, which is like the most boring change you have to make to your application is increment, you know, the build number every time. 
But it's easily forgettable. <laughs> oh, it's super easy to forget, right? And that's yeah. what was happening in this case, was the developer would sometimes deploy it, he'd forget to bump the build number. So we'd go through the whole deployment process and that build process takes sometimes 20, 30 minutes to get that, especially if you include the uploading process to Apple's test flight and the processing time before they give you feedback. That's actually, you know, that's sometimes an hour, an hour and a half. So, you know, having to kind of realize at the very end of that, oops, we forgot to increment the build number, let's go back. In this case too, he actually unfortunately had just been going through ACL surgery too. So he wasn't always available well, in the office because yeah. he was going to a physiotherapist. So like his availability wasn't good. So there, you know, the pain points between relying on this one guy who was in the middle of, you know, dealing with ACL surgery and recovering from that and having that point of failure of the build number, those were two big pain points and good reasons to move to CI. So yeah, I guess in summary, find the pain points. It's probably hard for me to pick someone up off the street who doesn't have a problem already and tell them that continuous integration is going to solve things. But once people have those pains, I think it's really, really easy to change their mind yeah. or convince them to start using it. It's one of those cases where it's like you don't realize the pain until your employee has to be out for a few weeks or what was it? Somebody was like, um, paternity leave some company and like they're quickly trying to hire somebody to like fill the gap until he gets back and it's just like one of those situations where you don't run into it until you run into an issue and you're like okay now I need to set up some sort of system with continuous integration in order to make sure that deployments are easy and things like that yeah what would be some like first steps in order to get started like what would you say is like the bare minimum as far as getting continuous integration set up yeah, so I mean, one of the first things you probably want to be thinking about is eliminating any local dependencies you have, right? If someone can only run that from their machine, there's a reason why, right? Something is local to only their machine that isn't available to others. In a lot of cases with iOS, it's mainly about the certificates and the profiles that are on right. that computer that the others don't have. So you're going to try to Either, you know, make sure that your CI system has that stuff now, or ultimately, yeah, you're just trying to make sure that this is something that you can reproduce pretty much anywhere, you know, that people haven't, you know, have too many local scripts or anything like that running that would prevent you from duplicating the build experience somewhere else. So that's one of the first things that you can do. If you have a tool like Fastlane that you're using already, because sometimes some teams are actually using Fastlane to do tasks for themselves, but they haven't got themselves on CI yet, or you're trying to sort of slowly work your way there. I think Fastlane is a good tool that can start getting you ready for that because Fastlane is all about doing tasks related to iOS stuff for you automatically, and you can run Fastlane commands in CI. So you could even have your build test deploy phases running from your local machine through Fastlane. And then when you put it on CI, you're basically just telling CI to run those same commands you were locally. So that can make it very easy to make the transition. If you already have a pull request code review process going on, that's probably one of the most important places to start integrating your CI server because every time you put code up for review, then it can go through this system and some of that feedback can be automated against it. So I'd say if a team doesn't have any sort of pull request or code review process yet, they should get that up and running first. 
even if they don't do super thorough examinations of the code in those pull requests, at least get the CI starting to do that for them. I think those are some good first steps to getting ready for CI. So let's step back for a little bit and talk about each of those components, like a pull request and a code review process. What does that mean exactly? So it's very easy for me to just merge code into, say, the main, the main code base that maybe I'm collaborating on with others. But if I just sort of get to directly make changes to the code, no one else is you know, reviewing that in advance for any sort of mistakes or giving me feedback on how maybe I can improve those changes to the code base. And not having a process in place to do something like that is probably prone to causing error or catching problems later. So if you use anything like GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, they all have the ability to do a pull request process, which basically means you work on your code in sort of a separate branch in Git terms, you know, from the main master code base. And then you make a formal request to merge your branch of code into your master or into maybe your development branch where you're working on things. And before that merge actually happens, someone actually has to approve it. You know, someone has to actually go into, say, if you're using GitHub, go into GitHub and hit the approve button, and then the code can be merged from there. So, you know, the pull request process is the first step to, I think, creating a code review process. Like I said, you know, even if you were not reviewing the code changes, but you at least were going through a formal process of putting up a request to change the code and someone else was approving it, that would be the first step. And then from there, you'd probably want to influence your culture to like spend more time actually looking at the code, um, getting feedback on it, and then integrating CI as well. And I can certainly talk about things CI can do for your code review processes as well later. So basically, like you have unit tests, obviously, that need to be run. And we did a whole episode on unit tests a few months ago, which you can check out. But like a pull request, that's where you would have like your branch or your feature. And then you want to make sure to merge it into a specific version or master branch. And then somebody will go ahead and approve that. Does that sound about right? Yeah. And I think like one of the biggest challenges, and you just touched upon this, was the local dependencies and the certificates and profiles and things like that. That seems like one of the biggest challenges that I faced with getting any sort of continuous integration set up is getting those certificates on some sort of server or putting them into the repo, but also in a way that is secure because obviously you don't want anybody off the street to come in, get your repo, and then put your app into the app store. But like there's a specific process for setting that up, right, where you can like encrypt the certificate, but then like have the password on the CI so that way it can decrypt it while at the same time, like making it secure, but also letting the CI system be able to approve and deploy an app. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You ultimately want to expose your certificate to as few people as possible, ideally. You don't really want to be distributing these widely. So yeah, the fewer number of people that have that privileged right, the better. And I mean, depending on the size of the team, you know, in enterprise situations, like I was working with a bank earlier this year, and they don't want the certificates or the profiles available to the developers at all. In fact, they have policies at the bank that, you know, a developer can't end-to-end -end both build the application and get it deployed to the store. There's actually multiple steps between to sort of make sure no one gets that much power. If you can say, I guess, how do they get around that? 
Well, I mean, ultimately, they have a DevOps team. And so these are, you know, operations guys who are sort of full-time dedicated to building the applications and getting things configured properly. So they get some access to this stuff, although those certificates and profiles are still kept in a vault. There's like HashiCorp Vault is a product. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Okay. But it's just sort of a secure key store. So their CI system accesses things from this vault, but um, they have permissions to work with the vault and the CI process. But yeah, we weren't even really super involved in that. You know, I could make some requests to change some of the CI workflows, but DevOps always was approving those. I couldn't change those myself. So interesting. it was just sort of one layer away from me that had the access ultimately. So if someone were to get started with CI, what service would you recommend first and foremost and how to each differentiate themselves? Right. Well, I think my suggestion would maybe depend on, you know, whether, like if we're talking about just getting started with your first CI ever and you haven't done this at all and we're talking about iOS, I've certainly enjoyed using BitRise because BitRise is very iOS and Android focused. When they first came out, they were even just iOS focused. And I found that the flow of getting started with them, they would you know, do additional analysis on your project and try to sort of get it auto configured for you. Every time there's new versions of Xcode, they really try to be the first to get those beta versions of Xcode out onto their systems. So I found that they just, they have a very like iOS's first class kind of attitude, which I like. Things like Travis CI and Circle CI are both, I guess I don't have much to differentiate between those two. They might have different price points. Some of these different services also I know like, let's say you're doing an open source project that you want to put through CI. I think Travis or Circle might be better for that because they have a better free tier. Yep. I've used Travis CI and we'll get into it a little bit, but I still haven't figured it out with Circle CI and I've actually talked to some of the folks there. But Travis also does Mac apps, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And I think Circle supports that, but I haven't quite figured that out. It seems like the big hurdle with a lot of these services Spoiler alert is that you actually need a Mac to like run this stuff, which is a huge cost burden to any company in the cloud because they literally like if you look at somebody like Mac Stadium, like you literally have to have a rack of Mac Pros or Mac Minis or iMac Pros or whatever to like run this stuff. It's not like even with a VM, you need to run this stuff on a Mac. So I think like that's one of the big burdens with a lot of these services is like a lot of your CI services, they're going to be fine at doing like your Ruby or your Node.js and even some of the .NET stuff. But like once you actually need a piece of like Mac hardware to do it, that kind of makes it Mm -hmm. more of a challenge cost wise to these companies. For sure. And yeah, performance of some of these things, I guess when they're like running inside of virtual machines may not be as good as if you, say, got a really high-end Mac Mini or something and ran it locally. Because that is another option is self-hosting, which we haven't touched on yet. And I don't really recommend self-hosting for some reasons I'll bring up in a second. But just exploring what that means, you know, this is buying a computer to sort of have, you know, in your office that is connected with the system and running those things locally on your own computer And then you could do that either through Jenkins, which is a very popular one, or Xcode server. Apple has their own Xcode server, although I don't know 
anyone who uses Xcode Server. I don't know if you have uh, yeah. worked with many companies that use it. I haven't found it to be very good personally. It's okay. So here's my situation that I've run into is I have a Mac app, Speculid, which is for building app icons from SVG files or image sets, whatever. Okay. So like with this app, I've run into situations, especially early on where I needed to like actually test it on different like Mac environments. And one thing you learn with like Mac development, I find one of the biggest challenges is that you don't have like reset simulator on the Mac, right? So I ended up setting up like a VirtualBox VM on my iMac to run Mojave or whatever is the latest OS and putting Xcode server on it. And it works. And it's like a great way for me to just like do reset simulator essentially by reverting to like a snapshot on a VM. And that's what I've been using whenever I need to like test there's been all sorts of weird issues like dependencies that haven't been installed or like I totally forgot about how different countries do decimal points differently and like all sorts of weird issues I've run into that has been to my benefit with the CI stuff. So like Xcode server worked. It was fine. Was it great? Was it as easy to set up as like Travis, which is probably the other situation I've run into? No, I don't think so. And of course, it's like not the fastest, but it works. <laughs> It gets the steps done for sure. Like it's not pretty. It just sort of does the basics versus something like I know Bitrise. I mean, I really like their interface because I think it's nice looking and it's something. I mean, I know some companies, you know, even have sort of a culture of trying to make sure that sort of the build and whether it's kind of staying green is, you know, the developers are sort of aware of that all time. So maybe you have a dashboard that's kind of giving you right, right. an update on what your CI is and is it staying green? So sometimes using a nice CI that actually makes that look kind of nice to have, but it's not really the most important thing is just being able to run the steps. Right. And the integration with Xcode is really good. And it was just a matter of like the issue I ran into was just I was using Travis CI because Travis CI is free for open source projects. And like it worked fine, but there was just a lot of things that I couldn't really like get into the guts of a Mac that I could do with a VM and Xcode server. So that's why yeah. I ended up getting that set up. Yeah. And Travis CI doesn't necessarily have the latest betas installed for a lot of reasons. <laughs> so I was able to like set up a CI system with whatever was the latest beta at that time. Yeah. For ultimate sort of like power and control, having things, you know, self-hosting is the way to go for sure. You can do things just different that may not be possible. Like even the kinds of like caching can be different on some of these different services as well. I know that Bitrise has some caching capabilities, but there might be a limit to the size of the cache. I heard recently, I think maybe Circle CI didn't have a cache. Okay. Someone was telling me they were okay. using either Travis or Circle, and it couldn't cache the same way that Bitrise could anyway. And when you say cache, what exactly are you talking about? Just like holding on to some artifacts. Like, you know, sometimes you have dependencies such, uh, you know, a lot of people use CocoaPods. And you don't want to rebuild and refetch those dependencies every single time. Is that what you mean? For sure. Okay. Exactly. Okay. That can certainly add to the time that it takes to get through your whole CI process. Yeah, that sounds like a lot. We okay. had Abby Jackson on last week. We talked about modul modularization, <laughs> but she said like one of the big benefits is build time. So it's not something I really think about. But like if you're doing caching, like what you're talking about, then that makes total sense. That's going to like save a ton of time on your builds. For sure. One other thing with self-hosting is the benefits is you get all the control, but... The downsides is nobody's going to do that for you. So 
you become responsible yes. for it. So I yes. definitely think when a company decides whether they want to use a service or want to self-host, they should really think about the DevOps costs associated with that yes, in particular. Exactly. Because if there's a beta, you're going to be responsible for getting that beta up and running. And if you realize that all of a sudden your team is growing and you need more machines, then you need to go buy and provision all of those machines and then get them collaborating together on a farm yourself again. And that is one thing that's really nice about using a service is that your team grows and you just buy the next tier or pay you know $5 more per month or whatever it costs per developer to grow your team like that. So these third-party services scale very nicely. And yeah, the DevOps costs you should really strongly consider before self-hosting, I think, for sure. Yeah. Do you have like an opinion on using a service like Mac Stadium? Because the only reason I see it might be important for self-hosting is security reasons or like Mac development where you like actually need an actual machine to like play around essentially with the computer itself and get those settings exactly the way you want it. Like, otherwise, I don't see much of a reason to use self-hosting service, right? Yeah. Unless you just you want to do something really different. There was one organization I was working with, I can't talk too much about this one, but they wanted to be running a lot of different types of virtual, like they wanted to kind of virtualize their whole system mm -hmm. during the CI process. So the servers that were being communicated with were all being run from that server as well. Mm, okay. And so they were looking at moving towards self-hosting to get some of those features that they couldn't get from doing it through these third-party services. Because there are some limitations to just like how far you can configure these things. Exactly, exactly. It's like a sort of temporary container. They boot up and they run some things and then they tear it down for you, right? So you only get so much in that container. Right. Like I'd almost suggest maybe looking at something like Mac Stadium, like somewhere it's almost like a compromise in between like, what is it? It's like a layer of abstraction from running your own server locally, but not quite as abstract as like, Travis CI or Circle or BitRise because then like you don't have to do the IT work but you still have to set up the OS. So like that might be a decent compromise in some situations. So I don't know Mac Stadium super well. If I understand, it's sort of letting you actually get full access to a Mac machine. Exactly. Remotely, yeah. Yeah, they just have like Mac minis that they run in their several locations that you have access to. And I've done like, I've done the VirtualBox setup with getting a Mac server set up in VirtualBox. That way I can like tear it down and bring it back up. But that's only for like small apps that I've done. And then I'll post a link to my YouTube video about how I got Speculate set up on Travis CI, which is a Mac app and how I got that to work as well. So I wanted to jump in and talk a little bit more about Fastlane, which we got into and some of the tooling there. But you said you wanted to mention something about feedback loop and how feedback loops can be some issues you could run into with continuous integration. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Sure. Continuous integration is something I see as fitting as one of your feedback loops or sort of touch points. But to explain first a little bit about what the feedback loop is, you know, a developer is going to get a piece of work in and then they're going to need to iterate on that several times before it goes out the door. And that iteration cycle, I would call your feedback loop and how long it takes for you to get feedback on something, whether it's working for you or not, you want to try to make that the smallest amount of time possible, right? So there's lots of different points of feedback that we have. 
we're getting feedback as we're continuously like developing on something, running it, checking if it's working. We're getting feedback when we run unit tests, when we run UI tests. We're getting feedback when we pass things to the QA team and when we're, say, getting approval from our designers and our product owners. But each one of these points of feedback takes a certain amount of time to like send it out and then get feedback and know whether to iterate on it further or whether you've sort of met the requirements. So I think we want to try to think about how we, well, A, you know, some of the touch points with people, we want to make sure that we have like fast access to them and can turn around feedback quickly. But we also want to try to organize things in a way where the tightest feedback loops are sort of available to us first. We get those working and then we slowly work sort of our way outward into the things that take longer and longer to get feedback from. So the first things are the development you're doing as you're iterating on it. Unit tests, I think, are a great way to get fast feedback on something as well. UI tests, those tend to get a little bit slower now. Sometimes some UI test suites, you know, may even take hours to run. So those are not necessarily the greatest way to get feedback. Those are something that might fit well in, say, your continuous integration, right? And I think this, again, so this is coming back to earlier, just like why continuous integration is important and sort of making sure that steps like, say, running your UI tests don't get missed before you say go to QA or maybe get your final approvals because those types of feedback take even longer sometimes than running some of those tests earlier, right? So I think that's where continuous integration fits in ultimately is that you kind of want to make sure there's some step that's making sure that's doing that proofing and giving you feedback as soon as possible because sometimes you ship something to QA and QA can't look at it until tomorrow. And then, you know, four hours later, then they give you the feedback and then you iterate on it. So Really, you want to be sending things to QA as perfect as possible. So yeah, again, just thinking about that feedback loop, what kinds of things can I get the feedback on the fastest to help me with my iterations before I go to the slowest things? CI, I think, kind of fits somewhere nicely in the middle, like after I've done my work, but before I start sharing it out with the greater team, I want to have my continuous integration feedback loop in place. So you're saying like when it comes to the pipeline between the developer and QA, continuous integration kind of fits in there to kind of facilitate and help QA give you feedback, but on a much quicker timeline. Does that sound right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, continuous integration can even help with the pull request or code review process itself. Like I'm really big on automating as much analysis as possible, really, so that even when it comes to requesting that your peers review code, they're not, you know, nitpicking on, oh, you left a to-do comment in here and, oh, your spacing isn't quite right here. Because those aren't really exciting things. And I don't think they contribute super positively to the culture to be nitpicking at code. You really want to automate those things to help just kind of make sure everyone's code is in line and then let the team work on some of the higher level analysis of like, oh, this is an interesting implementation, but if you use this trick, you might save, you know, five lines of code or something like that. Like that's the kind of feedback I want from peers. So CI, yeah, can help do some QA before you get to your QA. And it can also help you do some code review before it even gets to your peers. Really interesting. I like that a lot. And I guess let's just touch on it. But like the elephant in the room to a lot of this setup with continuous integration is Fastlane. 
and I don't know if there's any other apps you'd recommend, but like I met Felix, I want to say like about a year and a half ago, and he was super nice and he's super into security now. I don't know if you've watched or gone to any of his talks, but he's really into man in the middle attacks where you can like have software that kind of listens into your traffic or all that kind of stuff, which I think is super important. We don't really talk much about, but like Fastlane has been around, I don't know since when, but it's definitely automated a lot of like the App Store API stuff and a few of the other things. What other benefits does Fastlane have? And especially when it comes to continuous integration, what does it bring to the table? Yeah. So, I mean, Fastlane has like a ton of different types of tasks you can run with it. And it's available for both iPhone apps and Android apps, correct? Yes. It was iOS support first, but I believe it does all sorts of Android stuff now as well, too. But I know Felix just added so many different tasks and all sorts of ways to communicate also with the Apple or like App Store Connect in order to help like get team members set up. So, it can do things even sort of outside your system of helping you just get your team set up. I recently worked on a team that had a good fast lane set up for helping people get the configurations they needed, like pull down the development profiles that they needed just to run things on the simulator sort of all automatically. That was something I actually hadn't seen Fastlane use before. So even beyond CI, it just has tasks that are really useful to automate for an iOS team that maybe don't need to run more than every time you add a new developer to the team. But beyond that also, yeah, just full of lots of different tasks you can do to build, test the application, bump your version number, take screenshots. And one other, I think, very important thing to think about sometimes, when you set up what's gonna be happening in your continuous integration process, you can sort of choose, oh, am I gonna write the tasks that it's gonna do? Am I gonna configure those in the continuous integration system itself? Or am I going to try to push as much of that configuration into my code repository, like commands for Fastlane to run? And the benefit of keeping it in your repository is that the developers have more control over it. Like I mentioned that example earlier, where when I was working with a bank, the DevOps team was in charge of the CI. So really we wanted to put as much into Fastlane as possible because that's where we had more control over changing what targets were being built, et cetera. Versus if we had put that into the CI system, we would have had to go through a much slower process in order to make changes to our build configurations. So yeah, putting things in Fastlane, I think, helps developers keep in control of it. And you can also think about vendor lock-in. If you were, say, moving between, maybe you're using a third-party service and then you decided, hey, I want to actually move to self-hosting or vice versa, or say you're using Travis and then you decide, no, I prefer Bitrise. If you have most of your commands in Fastlane, it's going to be easier to move between these services because you've used far less of the vendor-oriented configurations. Yeah. You talk to a lot of people in server-side development, they'll all tell you like vendor lock-in has become a big deal on their end. So it's only a microcosm of that issue when it comes to like continuous integration services when it comes to iOS development. So I can, I can totally understand that. Yeah, vendor lock-in for like server-side is way, way more of a problem than what <laughs> I'm talking about. But I mean, it's not even so much vendor lock-in. It's just like, oh, it's going to take me a little bit of time to get right, from this right. service to this service. But like, the server side people are dealing with like serious like costs associated with moving <laughs> their services over, like nothing we see on our side. Right, exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really, really great to talk about this topic. I think it's super important. 
and I'm glad we covered it. Going back, server-side people have been doing this for a while, but like when it comes to iOS stuff, I think. And watch and Mac and TV there. I almost forget that one. I think this is a topic that, along with uh, test-driven development that people should really engage with and integrate into their team. And where can people find you? On Twitter, I guess, K-Y-L-N-E-W. It's just like the first three letters of my first name, first three letters of my last name. Other than that, also I have a website, pyrus.io, P-Y-R-U-S.io, that I do consulting through. I blog on there occasionally. I haven't blogged recently. Otherwise, I'm just in the community in Toronto trying to run meetups and uh, ran the SwiftTO conference just this past summer, which you spoke at about Vapor. Yeah. You can find me around Toronto. Go to a Toronto Swift meetup and you'll probably see me there. Yes, and if you miss a meetup, you're doing the video work on those, aren't you? Yeah, as much as possible. I'm trying to film all the meetups going on in Toronto just because we did a survey from the conference and got feedback from people and definitely saw from even the conference feedback that like people find it hard sometimes to come into the city unless it's say a, like a full day of content. So trying to find ways to distribute more video content so that it's available to those who can't make it downtown for our uh, meetups. Yeah, I love to check those out. And so Toronto was a great conference. So we'll see if you guys do it again. So hopefully, yeah, try to polish on the details. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Thanks again for joining us on this episode. And we look forward to talking to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks again. Take care. Thank you.